Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And you can always find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn Radio, GoodPods, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As far as social media, I am on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube as Let's Talk Micro, on X as Let's Talk Micro 1, on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza, and I have an email address which is Let's Talk Micro at Outlook.com. So please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, and if the app allows you to do so, please go ahead and leave a review. Any feedback, any suggestions, either via, you know, via social media, via email, they are always welcome and appreciated. So thank you for the support and continue downloading episodes. And if you haven't checked out the previous episode, please go ahead and do so. It was just some, some older content that I went ahead and did a little bit of editing. And then I went ahead and re-released it with some comments and things like that. But it was an episode that was originally episode 57, which then it's now 119. And it is about Streptococcus pneumoniae. And this episode, like others, uh, you know, it is they are great content that was released early in the podcast when maybe I didn't have as many followers and not as much um, reception as I have now. So I thought it would be good to give those episodes like a fair chance as more people start following the podcast, they become aware of it to release that content so they can go ahead and revisit it. And I hope it benefits, you know, medical laboratory scientists and microbiologists. So in this episode, I talk about streptococcus pneumonia. I talk about the gram stain. I go over morphology, uptokin, and the bile solubility test. So if you haven't checked that out, please go ahead and do so. And before I talk about today's episode, I just want to say real quick, I don't know if you're following me on social media, you saw that I had the opportunity to have an article feature in the website of Dr. Timothy Gauthier, who's a pharmacist. And I think that Dr. Gauthier, you know, has a very similar goal as I do, which is, you know, to share information. So he's very active in the community, very active in social media. So I had the chance to have an article feature on the website idstewardship.com where I talk about the podcast, about why I started it, about things microbiology, about medical laboratory sciences, about all the information. So overall, it was a great article. So thank you, Dr. Gauthier, for the opportunity. It's always great seeing people out there that are trying to use their knowledge and their education to make this profession better. And as I mentioned before, you know, antibiotics, you know, it's a lot of information. It can be very daunting, a little bit intimidating. So if you are looking to learn more about antibiotics, please check out the learnantibiotics.com website and the Learn Antibiotics book, which is available on Amazon. And this is from Dr. Gauthier. So, you know, this book and the resources, they include cheat sheets, practice tests, games, and more. And these resources are being used by thousands of people worldwide and may be helpful for you. So definitely check it out. I had the opportunity to check the book and the website as well. And it has a lot of great information. So I invite you to please go ahead and check it out. So I'm just going to make this uh, short and quick. So today's episode is about fluoroquinolones. And those of you that have been waiting on the next episode of the AMR subseries, as you know, we started with an overview and then we went on to talk about beta lactams with Dr. Brian Rowe. And this one has a guest as well. And of course, co-hosting with me the series is Dr. Andrea Prinzi. So in this episode, our guest, 
Dr. Minky Wungwatana. He comes to the podcast to talk about fluoroquinolones, and he starts giving a historical overview. He goes over the mechanism of action. He gives all sorts of interesting information, like generations of fluoroquinolones. He talks about salmonella and breakpoints for fluoroquinolones. You know, he talks about CLSI. And he wraps up with a nice message about, an interesting message about saving fluoroquinolones for a rainy day. So in the spirit of Let's Talk Micro, this was broken down as simple as we can, and I hope you enjoy it. So let's go ahead and listen to it. So I know I've seen some comments in social media, and I've seen some feedback, and I had this question asked. When is the AMR subseries coming back? So if you've been waiting for that, this is the episode for you. And I also, you know, I urge you to, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes of the AMR subseries, and I'll be talking about it a little bit, go ahead and check them out. We did an introduction and we did an episode about beta-lactams. So if this is the first episode that you're tuning in, maybe you have listened to the podcast before. We started doing a sub-series within the podcast about antimicrobial resistance. And in the spirit of Let's Talk Micro, we like breaking things down, making it simple. And I know that those of you that work in the lab, you get all this information that sometimes you're, you feel overwhelmed, so many resources. So what we're trying to do in this segment here is to go ahead and break down the antimicrobials and point to the resources where you can find this information. So in this series today, I have a guest, but of course, I have my co-host, which is Dr. Andrea Princey. How are you, Andrea? Good morning. I'm doing great. I'm running a little crazy with the holidays, but it's it's a happy time overall. How are you? Pretty good. Um, The same, you know, just I finished school, so it just something good so now i just yeah so now i just have work and then i get to and i'm doing a little bit of traveling over the holidays so i get to take a little break so this is the the good time of the year when i actually get a break you know i'm still going over my master's so i take classes over the summer and a lot going on so it's a nice time to slow down a little bit and relax good for you i i have missed doing our little sub series here so i'm happy we're squeezing one in before the end of the year Definitely, same here. Um, so, so like I said, when I open, uh, we have a guest. So, you want to go ahead and introduce our guest, Andrea? Yes, yes, I'm very excited too. So, um, as you know, I love to invite any friends or colleagues that I'm lucky enough to work with to the show, especially um, my infectious disease PharmD colleagues because they're some of my favorite people. I think PharmD is such a great relationship with them as clinical laboratorians. And so we have another one today. Um, today we have Dr. Minky Wungwatana. Uh, Minky attended Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana for his doctor of pharmacy degree. And after graduation, he completed his postgraduate training in general pharmacy practice and infectious diseases at Indiana U University Health in Indianapolis, Indiana. And he works with me now at BMRU. We're lucky enough to have uh, gotten him over this past summer. But prior to that, Minky spent the last 10 years practicing antimicrobial stewardship at Maine Medical Center, eight years in the acute care setting, and two years in the outpatient setting. At Maine Health, the health system Maine Medical Center is a part of, uh, Maine had the Minky had the opportunity to work with the amazing microbiology team at NordDX. Little shout out to the micro team over there. Uh, this was a unique experience in that NordDX provided microbiology services to not only Maine Health, uh, but additional non-main health clients as well. So he comes to us with a wealth of experience working with both the microbiology lab and in clinical practice overall. So we're super delighted to have him today. And he's going to be 
walking us through all things fluoroquinolone. So welcome, Minky. Delighted to have you. Thank you, Andrea. <clears throat> Thank you, Louise, for the um, in invitation to come talk on your uh, podcast series, too. So um, antibiotic resistance and micro, you know, laboratory um, connections is, is part of my passion and part of why I joined BMU. So I'm excited to be here talking to you guys about fluoroquinolones. Well, definitely a pleasure having you on. And you know, so definitely great having someone that to the goal of the podcast, which is, you know, share information and, and make things a little bit easier. As I mentioned in the opening, this is a lot of information and, and sometimes, you know, we're thrown there in the lab and then, okay, yeah, you're training for four weeks and then you're seeing all this and you're like so overwhelmed. So having a little something that you can go back and at the very least point the resources and make it easier, you know, it's a, it's a huge goal of mine and I appreciate people that join me along that journey. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, anything else before we actually start the episode about the the recap of the series, Andrew? Anything that you want to add? Uh, you know, I would just add that, um, just a reminder to the audience, uh, we do always disclose a conflict of interest. We do work in the in vitro diagnostics industry, but this podcast is not representative of that in any way. This is just a discussion about medical concepts and because we are clinical microbiologists and infectious disease clinicians, we love to continue to do education around these concepts. It's really important to our daily work. And so that's why we do this, um, but we are not promoting anything in any way. And I, I just like to always disclose that at the beginning. And that's it. Definitely. So as I mentioned before, so uh, the previous episode was about beta lactams. So today's episode is about fluoroquinolones. So uh, Binky, can you go ahead and maybe take us a little bit of a you know, going back to the discovery of them and maybe start touching on the on the chemical structure of them. Yeah, definitely. And uh, uh, a quick shout out to the previous episode, uh, two episodes too, that uh, you and Andrea had recorded. So um, I won't spill any spoilers if you haven't listened to the Baylactam episode yet, but um, Dr. Brian Rao did a wonderful job of um, giving us a nice history lesson of how Baylactams were discovered and, um, you know, especially the discovery by Dr. Alexander Fleming. Now with the fluoroquinolone class, which is another um, from in the clinical world, uh, the clinical field, highly utilized, but also highly contested, highly discussed, highly controversial, whatever term you want to throw out there, um, <clears throat> for many reasons. And we'll talk about a little bit of that today. Um, fluoroquinolones, in interestingly different than the beta-lactam class, was not um, discovered through kind of natural means or um, natural production from other bacteria. It was actually discovered in 1962. Um, interesting story, though, always an interesting story with antibiotic discovery, was that it was uh, discovered during the synthesis of chloroquine. <clears throat> so it was a byproduct. So there's a drug called naledixic acid, which some parts of the world may or may not still use today. Um, it's not quite used as often um, in the United States, uh, mainly because we have some uh, more potent or more readily available and some uh, sometimes even cheaper fluoroquinolones like ciprofloxacin and levofloxacin. Uh, but naledisic acid was the very first fluoroquinolone ever discovered um, by accident, kind of, uh, as people were trying to synthesize chloroquine. Um, really, the mechanism of action of fluoroquinolones is super unique, very different than the beta-lactam class. Um, if we think about a bacterial cell, um, you've got all sorts of areas, right, that we can try to target or conceivably conceptually target to try to kill the bacteria or stop the um, multiplication and growth of it. Um, and fluoroquinolones specifically work very deep inside the cell. So kind of, 
if you close your eyes for a second and imagine the bacterial cell, you have the cell wall, you have the cytoplasmic space, and then deep within the bacterial cell, you've got the DNA um, area piece of the, uh, the organism. So in a kind of 10,000 foot view where fluoroquinolones work is deep, deep in the cell at the DNA level. Um, and there's two main enzymes that fluoroquinolones act on. One is the DNA gyrase or topoisomerase 2 um, and then topoisomerase 4. Um, there are a couple other topoisomerases within the bacterial cell, um, one and three. Uh, fortunately, these are not targets of fluoroquinolones. Um, and just throughout the history of development of fluoroquinolones, what you will see if you pick up some historical uh, articles and uh, read the timeline, uh, very similar to beta-lactams. You have generations. You have first generation, second generation, third. Um, and what uh, scientists have done is they've tinkered with carbon groups and fluoride groups. Uh, and through tinkering, uh, what you get are just changes in activity. Uh, you get changes in absorption, but also you get changes in side effects. So um, without going too deep in detail, these are kind of some of the uh, nuts and bolts and quirks of fluoroquinolones. I just want to jump in here really quickly because I'm so glad you just brought up nalidixic acid. Um, Luis, are you all still using nalidixic acid and your susceptibility testing to sort of screen for fluoroquinolone resistance in salmonella or no? Is that an outdated practice in, in your setting? Um, no, no, we are not. So old school micro, um, that's and some centers may still be doing this. Uh, we used to do that really routinely. Um, when I started in the micro lab I was in, it was, you know, 2008 or 2009. Uh, it was fairly common practice to use it as a surrogate for fluoroquinolone resistance and that's not really widely accepted anymore. Minky, I don't know if you want to comment on this, but I think there's um, there's other resistance mechanisms now that we know about. And so some of these bugs may test susceptible to nalidixic acid, but be resistant to something like ciprofloxacin. So it's not really as useful anymore, but we used to use that all the time. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up in the, the history. Yeah, it, it's got a historical kind of place. Uh, we definitely can't forget the first one ever. Um, when we placed nalidixic acid in the generation timeline, it's certainly the first generation. And so the first generation fluoroquinolones as a group, um, they're wonderful gram-negative drugs, very, very good activity. But the two kind of big holes where they don't really do well um, is the gram-positive, the aerobic gram-positive, and the anaerobic side of things. And so as we see infections caused by gram-positives and anaerobic bacteria uh, grow around that time, you get scientists trying to manipulate, trying to play around with nalidisic acid and um, other first-generation fluoroquinolones to try to um, increase the activity. So if we jump forward a little bit to the second generations, you have Examples that you may see in the micro lab or in the clinical practice world, you, know, you have drugs like norfloxacin, ciprofloxacin, and levofloxacin. So what you get there is you get an increase or growth in gram-positive activity uh, when you compare it to the first generations. But there's still, you got that hole still. So while you get increased gram-positive, you might get a little bit more staph and strep. Where you still have the big hole is the anaerobic activity. It's really interesting. I just wanted to add that as Andra asked me that question, you know, it took me back in, in time a little bit. And I hadn't thought about that. And I remember when I was starting to train in bacteriology that I remember doing that, that we did, uh, we had a disc and we put it and then we checked based on that. Yeah. So it just, it just brought that memory. I just wanted to share that with the audience. Um, maybe some of you that might be newer uh, medical lab scientists might not be familiar with this or some of you that might be a little more experienced, have more time in the lab, remember this. So I just wanted to, you know, 
share that experience. And I know that, so you were, you know, you talked about, uh, you touched on the activity and as far as for the fluoroquinolones, um, like depending on the, on the infection, is that, does it, that correlate with which type of fluoroquinolone you use, or do you use some for certain infections and some for others? Yeah. So it would be great, right? If all fluoroquinolones were created equal, we can just, you know, substitute one for the other, or as we move regionally or, you know, globally, you might have certain areas where this fluoroquinolone is cheaper. So let's use that one. Or this fluoroquinolone has less side effects. So let's use that one and kind of substitute in, in and out um, based on activity. Um, they do have somewhat identical or similar activity, but where I'll give a little bit of nuance is, so you have a little bit of slight spread in differences in gram positive versus gram negative, but then you also have slight differences in the resistance mechanism profiles. So let's start with the activity and then we'll dive um, very surface level into my, my minor differences in the resistance mechanism. So Cipro, Floxacin, and Levofloxacin, those are two great head-to-head -head examples um, to try to compare and contrast. So Levofloxacin, the way that drug works is it mainly works on the DNA gyrase. And so this molecule was manipulated um, so much that it increased um, the ability to uh, enter gram-positive cells. So its distribution into gram-positive cells is a little bit better than ciprofloxacin, um, whereas ciprofloxacin is a DNA gyrase or topoisomerase 2 and a topoisomerase 4. It kind of works in the, uh, both of those areas. And it's, to me, the way I, I try to categorize Cipro versus Levo is that ciprofloxacin is more of a gram-negative drug and levofloxacin is more of a gram-positive drug. Now, that being said, a lot of clinicians like to use levofloxacin in clinical cases where you've got both. So you know, let's think of areas where you might have both, both gram-positive and gram-negative. So you might have abscesses or urinary tract infections. So levofloxacin plays a huge role and, and does really well there because if you're blind, if your cultures aren't growing, but you go, you know, I've got a gram-positive and potentially gram-negative problem, let's go with one that does both, okay. Um, but for me, when I get a gram-negative specific infection, um, I tend to uh, lean on the ciprofloxacin uh, more than levo. Um, in terms of the resistance mechanisms, you do have some minor, minor nuances. Um, so for testing, you know, I know, Louise, your question was, can we just test one and then refer kind of drug two to the, to the first one? Well, that becomes a little bit tricky. So what I do advise, and, and I think it'd be good for clinicians too, is to test one of each. So there's usually a gram negative representative, quote unquote, and then there's a gram positive representative uh, for a quinolone. And for me here in the United States, um, you know, ciprofloxacin would be your gram negative representative. Uh, and between levo and moxifloxacin, um, that's another one I would test um, for the gram, po gram positive representative, just so that you can see both sides of the coin in case you have resistance either way. Okay. Yeah, and then just for for the audience, yeah, that was something that I I definitely wanted to um to talk about because that's something that those of you that are listening out there, we get hit with the requests, and sometimes you know you might be in a lab where you know just you working the bench, and then you're like, okay, I got this request. Um, so it's always good to know either you know can you infer one drug from the other, uh, things like intrinsic resistance also that do I need to be performing that test, um, where do I look, which you know. Uh, on previous episodes, you know, we touched on the 
on this CLSI and the appendix about intrinsic resistance. As I was reading, I mean, I couldn't see any. I don't know if anything comes up the top of your head, but is there any intrinsic resistance when it comes to uh, fluoroquinolones, any organisms? Well, <clears throat> I wouldn't say any group of organisms with intrinsic resistance um, other than uh, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. So for the longest time, there has been a struggle to finding a fluoroquinolone um, that can uh, treat that subsection of uh, bacteria. Uh, so none of the first, second, third, fourth generation, Cipro, Levo, Moxie, none of them have potent enough activity against MRSA, uh, but came along a drug called delafloxacin. Um, so that was manipulated enough um, that it does have MRSA activity now. So um, you've got some FDA approvals there um, to allow that drug to be used in clinical scenarios that uh, MRSA might be involved with. So that's kind of the, the newest kid on the block. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. That was actually, yeah. I mean, we use, uh, we have delafloxacin in our lab as well. So um, thank you for that information. Uh, you know, it's always great to know what's behind all these drugs. And um, and I know one thing that, uh, um, Andrea, when it comes to, let's talk about, um, I know you might have some questions about breakpoints, right? So that's always important to discuss. So um, do you have any questions about breakpoints? Do I ever? Um, we can't have a controversial episode about a controversial antibiotic class without talking about a controversial topic <laughs> known as breakpoints. Um, so I, I guess I'm just thinking about, you know, what what's useful to uh, medical laboratorians and, and when we're thinking about doing susceptibility testing, what's helpful for us to think about and talk about. And Minky, I think it would be really interesting for the audience um, if we could walk through some of the breakpoint changes that have happened recently with respect to fluoroquinolones and then uh, enterobacteriales, pseudomonas aeruginosa, and then diving a little deeper into the enterobacteriales with salmonella. Is there, could you give us a little clinical background on the enterobacteriales um, and, and why those breakpoint changes happened in 2019? Any clinical context there? And then I'll probably hit on some laboratory pearls that I think folks should just be aware of. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we take a step back real quick and, and stay, get out of the fluoroquinolone uh, mindset and just think of what interpretive breakpoints are. So interpretive breakpoints are supposed to be, the way I view it, translational tools to go from a result that you guys you know help produce in the microbiology lab and translate it to a kind of quick and easy, dirty, without having to spend minutes to hours um, interpreting uh, a result for a clinician to say, can I use a drug to treat this patient A safely, but also successfully? Um, and, you know, we've come up with uh, ranges of categories, you know, called susceptible, intermediate, and resistant um, to really send the signal, a very quick signal to the end clinician bedside user and say, oh, this is resistant. There is no dose, no frequency, no amount of drug that you can give safely, right? Safely is my key word because in the world of microbiology, I always view it as, oh, you can, you can give a little bit above the, any MIC and kill the organism. But at the same rate, when we apply cl you know, clinical mindset, are you going to kill your host or are you going to cause so much toxicity that it doesn't matter if you kill the bacteria, the host is going to suffer. So the R category stands for, you know, you would need doses so high that your host would die or they would suffer. Um, intermediate is that range where, you know, 
it's a little bit higher. You might have higher rates of reported failures, uh, but it could be potentially doable by manipulating doses and frequencies. And then the S, the nice bright green S is, you know, clinicians love to see that because it's, you know, whatever the package insert and uh, typical dosing schemes that are given to patients, we know they're safe. Uh, we know they're well tolerated. Um, and then given that green S, it gives the clinician that warm comfort feeling that we can treat it successfully. So going back to your question, Andrea, the changes were made to the enterobacterialis because there were ranges of um, MICs that we were starting to see clinical failures. Um, and that's generally what uh, leads to a lot of breakpoint changes or reevaluation of previously set breakpoints is maybe you discover certain new resistance patterns that you didn't know before, um, or maybe because of rampant usage of a certain drug worldwide or um, locally, you may have the majority of organisms now be at living at a higher MIC uh, than previously before. So with Enterobacterialis and Pseudomonas, you see a kind of a push down a little bit uh, with lower MICs being called susceptible, um, and then the resistant uh, upper end of resistant uh, range to be lowered as well. And mainly because at the doses that were given of both Cipro and Levo, um, we were seeing a lot of clinical failures in both Enterobacterialis and Pseudomonas. And so to create that nice, easy translational tool for clinicians, we want to give them uh, the right answer, which is now any MICs above the new breakpoints, they're now, uh, you want to be questioning whether you want to use that drug or not. This is awesome. Thank you. I, I really appreciate you giving that broad background. Um, for anyone that's listening that hasn't hit that breakpoints episode that Luis did um, earlier in the Let's Talk Micro podcast, I recommend checking that one out, especially if this um, is very, it's confusing for everyone. Um, breakpoints are, are a challenging um, concept with a lot of moving parts to them. So I, I suggest checking that out, but that was a really great introduction to why these things change. And I think an important thing uh, for folks to always remember is this is why the clinical um, clinician and medical laboratory collaboration is so important because as Minky was referencing, you know, there's this huge clinical impact to breakpoint changes and a lot of clinical data that feeds into why a breakpoint might change. So, um, you know, treatment failures, like he mentioned, or, you know, they, they notice that the dosing is, is, uh, you know, needs modification based on toxicity, things like that. And then we're also taking into account these MIC distributions of the organism and what we know about that. But then ultimately, the laboratory has to decide how to implement these changes and what's feasible based on resources or, um, you know, staffing or what the uh, clinical team wants or what's available on formulary at that given institution. And so there's a lot to consider um, other than just, hey, the breakpoints changed and now they have to be used. And there's some interesting things to consider with the fluoroquinolone changes for these organism groups. So specifically, um, Enterobacterialis, not including Salmonella, we'll get to that in a second. Um, it was an interesting change because when these were lowered, um, the new breakpoints, so I think that the old, correct me if I'm wrong, I think was uh, for Cipro was greater than, was um, anything, I think it was one, and then Levo was two, and now everything has moved down to for Cipro, uh, susceptible is less than or equal to 0.25, intermediate is 0.5, resistant is greater than or equal to one, and for Levo, yeah, and Levo is 0.5, one, and two. So they've come down quite a bit, and so the challenge for labs there is, is sometimes you have to stop and say, okay, so how many of the isolates we see were actually impacted by these breakpoint changes? How is that going to impact 
the volume of testing or the modifications that we do. And in this case, uh, most of the isolates out there fall below one or two. So most of the ones that are getting tested in, in medical laboratories are falling uh, within these ranges. And so the testing has to be figured out. And the reason I say that is because if you look at, for example, the pseudomonas changes, uh, you know, there's a, a great publication, um, I think it was by Romney Humphrey and teams explaining, um, and the group of authors, they're explaining the, the breakpoint changes and, and how to implement these from several years ago. Um, and I think it said that about 10% of isolates, pseudomonas originosa isolates were impacted by um, this lowering. So not nearly as many as that broader Enterobacter alleys group, where you have to think about pretty much every um, Enterobacter alleys organism that comes through that's getting tested against a fluoroquinolone. And so in thinking about this, um, I think the laboratory really has to consider what's been cleared on my automated system, if that's what I'm using, because doing manual testing for every one of those interbacterales is probably not going to be feasible, just in terms of um, staffing and resources and time. And so that's where it's really important to get in touch with the manufacturer and see what's been cleared, see if any customer letters have come out. Um, sometimes after an original clearance, uh, the manufacturer will do an internal validation, um, demonstrate that the breakpoints perform um, in an, an acceptable way um, for this bug drug combo, and then we'll issue you know, a notification for customers on how to get things updated in their system. Um, sometimes there's a full-on you know, software update, new panel or card or something that can help accommodate this. And so when you have so many bugs that you have to test um, that are impacted by breakpoint changes, that's probably the most reasonable way to go. Um, there are really great recommendations available in some of the publications that have come out through ASM, um, specifically the manuscript by Romney Humphreys and team that's discussing all these breakpoint um, updates that happened since 2010. Uh, we can link that or, or make that available for the audience later. Um, where they, they give you some algorithms to think through in terms of plans for getting things updated. So in the case of uh, the Interbacter Alleys group for Cipro and Levo, um, you know, you, you'd have to validate these if they were not cleared on your system. And that would mean, you know, quite a bit of work for the laboratory, but it's an important thing to do and probably worth the effort, definitely worth the effort because so much of the testing is going to be done and, and probably requires automation. Um, considering when fluoroquinolones really need to be released, what's actually being used at your institution. These things are also really important. Um, teaming up with the clinical team and figuring out, you know, are they asking for Cipro and Levo and, you know, any other fluoroquinolone on all these, or are they only requesting one most of the time? Is there something that you could only test on request? There's a lot of different ways to adjust the update to breakpoints and the, the testing that's done based on what the clinical team needs. So those are just really important things. To consider and talk to your clinical team about. Yeah, and Andrea, I have a uh, looking at the CSI breakpoint chart right now and some of the changes. So, did uh, did it ever make you guys go crazy that you know these breakpoints are not ever the same number? You know, like Cipro went from less than or equal to one susceptible to less than or equal to 0.5, but then Levo has two down to 0.5, right? So it goes back to the point that Luis was making earlier of, can we infer? Can we say, let's test one and apply the other? Um, so I was just curious, did that ever drive you guys nuts that these numbers never matched? <laughs> 
I don't know that it drove me nuts, but I think when you don't have the full picture of how these things are really determined, you're kind of like, why, why is that? And what's, what's going into this? Um, why would one be different than another? Um, I don't know about Luis. What do you, does that bug you? Um, maybe a little bit. Uh, yeah, not not that much. I mean, I think for me, it's always right to make sure that you know. I like to be in places where they're you know they're updated and they keep up with it. I have been in places where they haven't, and and you know something came to mind when those when you were talking about Minky about the superfluxin and and I remember a facility where the, yeah that they were still using that breakpoint with the one and and I don't know it just came to mind. But overall, not not much. I think for me, just always to make sure that. Right, that they are updated and and bring the information out there and make sure that people know and they're aware and things like that. For sure, and um, I will say, kind of prospectively from the cl the clinical ID side, uh, it drives us a little nuts sometimes when we have other clinicians, non ID folks, who call us, and let's say, for example, a prof susceptible profile only showed one for a quinolone, um, and so you've got let's say let's say they had levo. And they they either hid Cipro or they just had issues with uh, performing Levo or sorry Cipro, and you have a result that says Levofloxacin 0.5 susceptible, and so you go okay the clinician calls you up and they go oh does this mean I can use Ciprofloxacin and then you kind of gotta you know pause and and have them step step take a break a little bit because 0.5 is actually intermediate for Ciprofloxacin under the enterobacteria category. So it's, you know, taking the time out, pausing and teaching that clinician too about how there's a little bit of nuance and that you can't infer uh, one for the other as safely as, you, as you'd as you want. So that's kind of why going back to my point earlier, I think it's good to have your lab um, do both Cipro and Levo in that way. If one was resistant or intermediate, you still might have the other one as an option. Um, so that opens up a lot of doors for patients for sure. This is a, a really important conversation that I'm glad Luis brought up earlier because I, like he said, the lab does get called a lot with these kinds of questions, um, especially if one drug is suppressed and the other is released or if the other one just isn't tested for. Um, this happens a lot. And I would say to folks in the lab, just remember, I mean, Luis said this before, but I'll just say it again, that CLSIM 100 has amazing commentary, um, you know, sometimes before or after the tables, uh, with the specific ranges for uh, breakpoints or also in the appendices in the back that talk about um, things like intrinsic resistance. There's tables for intrinsic resistance. There's discussion around when you might be able to uh, infer susceptibility from one drug to another. Often they'll have a specific comment that says that um, in the M100. So it's such a good resource. Don't forget to look things up there. Um, they're wonderful and, and really informative. So just make sure to refer to that uh, and don't, don't guess. <laughs> <laughs> and then Minky, I want to ask you about, while we're on the topic of breakpoint changes, one thing, speaking of things that were confusing or frustrating in the lab, at least for me, was I felt like when I was working the bench, uh, the salmonella specific breakpoints were always confusing to me. So I think folks in the lab know that, I mean, I think most procedures are uh, written to say, okay, so uh, any anything from the stool, salmonella from the stool really doesn't need routine susceptibility testing except in special populations. Like I come from pediatrics, so it was warranted uh, 
probably more often than not, or, you know, maybe some immunosuppressed populations, it may be appropriate. Uh, but generally speaking, we're not doing routine susceptibility testing on those isolates. Um, in cases of extra intestinal salmonella isolates, or, you know, specifically like enteric fevers, the salmonella typhi, paratyphi, uh, that's always being done, right? But I think if you're in the lab, you know that most of the time you are setting up a disc or um, a gradient diffusion e-test strip, for example, on these extra intestinal salmonella isolates, and there are different breakpoints for salmonella. Um, can you help us understand why that is? Yeah. So this is partly why I love ID. There's a ton of good history out there and everything in ID has a historical reference. Um, and so salmonella um, as an organism has that and, and why it broke off and had started to have its own category for breakpoints and also why it was lowered back in 2013. So um, with, with anything that gets broken out that used to be part of a group, um, the first thing I go to is are there certain exceptions? Did we discover something? Was there something that is unique about this secondary uh, subspecies? In this case, it's Salmonella, as that's different than the other, other Enterobacteriaceae. Um, and the answer is yes. And that's mainly um, due to the clinical outcomes uh, in patients that did have extra intestinal Salmonella um, compared to you know using old breakpoints versus new breakpoints. So what I mean by that is, okay, if if we give the same drug dose and frequency that we do for uh, your run-of-the-mill enterobacteriaceae like E. coli, um, and then let's say we apply the same breakpoints to salmonella and the outcomes are the same, then you could say, okay, let's categorize them similarly. Let's apply the same breakpoints because clinical outcomes are fairly similar. With the case with salmonella and extraintestinal salmonella, that wasn't the case. So when we apply you know, breakpoints that are a little bit higher for enterobacteriaceae to salmonella, you know, you start seeing cases of failure, you start seeing cases of death um, being caused by salmonella. And so that takes, you know, all of us to, to take a look in a mirror and say, should these even be the breakpoints for salmonella? And that's why they broke off. They got their own. And then in 2013, part of the reason why you had a lowering um, breakpoints, you know, the upper limit of resistant to ciprofloxacin was greater than four that dropped all the way down um, to, I believe, uh, susceptible was now less than or equal to 0 0.064. Um, intermediate was now considered 0.12 to 0.5, and then resistant was anything above one. And so why the lowering? And so it all has to do with um, clinical cases being reported. So what ended up happening was you, you get this increasing number of publications that um, clinicians were saying, hey, I use Cipro in these cases. It showed susceptible. Patients were dying. Patients were not being treated. They weren't clearing, et cetera, et cetera. And so what ended up happening in the microbiology side, um, you know, everything, you, you, we want to have an explanation, right? We don't want to just change breakpoints with no rationale. So what was being discovered around that time was something called plasmid-mediated quinolone resistance mechanism. So PMQR for short. So what we knew for the longest time were some of these enterobacteriaceae, you know, specific uh, resistance mechanisms that applied across the board. But what was unique about Salmonella was you started to see these PMQRs that were not being um, what's the term, uh, not being represented represented by the older breakpoints. And so you started seeing blips of patients that are getting MICs of 0.38, blips of MICs of 0.6 something or point just below one. And that fell 
in the susceptible range before, right? Like when you look at the old breakpoints, anything under four was considered susceptible. So clinicians would use it. Clinicians would write for ciprofloxacin. But then you get percentages of patients failing and you start to question why. And so because of the discovery of these um, PMQRs, you had CLSI going back to the drawing board and say, oh my goodness, like we didn't know this was a, a phenomenon at the time, but now that we do, uh, we definitely need to uh, establish and then publish and then roll out these new breakpoints for salmonella. Again, think back to what who's using this. So we want to make it translatable, quick and easy for the clinician. And so um, that's, that's what ended up happening in 2013. That is awesome. I hope that answered a question for a lot of people that has been on my mind <laughs> many years. Um, I don't know. I felt like everyone I ever encountered, you know, some clinicians included, couldn't give me a real great breakdown of why that was. So I really, I really, really appreciate that. Um, one thing I would probably add just to the salmonella conversation is for uh, laboratorians, uh, you know, this is one of those scenarios where you think about bandwidth in terms of getting um, your breakpoints updated and actually manual testing for these isolates is really a great method. Um, DISC or e-test is, is a, a great method for this. So um, this may be a situation where you would want to stop and look at how many of these extra intestinal salmonella isolates you see a year and decide if it's really, uh, is it worth, you know, validating on an automated system, doing a big validation for that, or are there manual methods you could use uh, if this is seen sort of rarely in your system? Um, so again, just something to think about balancing resources with um, need and, and availability for the clinicians in your center. Um, so thanks so much for that, Mickey. That's that's really great, helpful. Yeah, and and I I want to add a little bit of um to that. And first of all, thank you so much for shedding some light into that. I think sometimes maybe those you know us working in the lab, we don't maybe you know think much about that. And and we do see like in my facility, you know, we see there's a message on an automated instrument that says perform, you know, manual testing on the population. So um, it's always good, you know, to understand this. And I don't know about you, Andrea, but, you know, salmonella is one of those organisms that we don't like in the lab because it involves all these extra steps. And, you know, it involves, right, you know, sometimes, you know, doing typing, sending out to the state, uh, filling out forms if you're in a smaller facility. Uh, but some of you in the audience, you know, you might be thinking, okay, why do we get that message from that automated instrument? And, you know, why are we doing a test and not going by what we're getting on the instrument? So, you know, some great questions have been answered. So uh, thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. And um, uh, I'll go one a little bit one step forward because I know, you know, before, you know, coming on to, to record this with you guys, we had some discussions about, you know, Cipro and Levo and these four quinolones. They're, they're on a lot of commercial susceptibility panels for certain organisms and are there any organisms that fluoroquinolones can be potentially used clinically that isn't represented or that isn't identified on your commercial automated identification systems and one that came to mind as i was thinking about this podcast was the mycobacterium class um, so mycobacteria is very difficult to treat um, i had a lot of experience dealing with it my last two years in clinical practice mainly because 
um, these patients are not really coming to your emergency department. They're not you know, showing up in ambulances. These are kind of indolent, slow-growing, nagging infections that really get dealt with on the outpatient side. And that's what I did my last two years of practice was, you know, support my ID doctors in, in the clinic setting. And we would see quite a bit of mycobacterium infections. And uh, based on a lot of patient variables, so let's think about, you know, all sorts of variables patients might walk in the door with. You have... Um, drug intolerances, allergies, you have drug interactions, you know, some of the mycobacterium regimens contain lots of liver enzyme induction or liver enzyme inhibition drugs that might get in the way and cause treatment failure or toxicities. Um, and then mycobacteria are just prone to having resistance. So some of your first line agents may or may not be viable anymore. And so through, you know, the last few decades, I would say as early as early 90s or mid 90s, the fluoroquinolone class have been kind of side studied um, as potential options for mycobacteria infection. So, um, you know, most common cases I've seen in, in clinic were, you know, mycobacterium chelone, abscesses, um, sometimes AVM complexes, you'll think of for quinolone. So if you guys in the micro lab get calls, you know, don't be surprised if it's a mycobacterium uh, isolate that they're asking for add-ons. And, and I know that not a lot of labs do that in-house. And so, um, you know, it might be a little frustrating to have to process that and get that sent out to a, a specialized lab. No, I think that's an important point, though, because I think it's great for laboratorians to know what's kind of on the horizon in terms of you know, organisms we may not be actively testing for in our current settings, just based on resources or, or what have you. But I think it's always good for uh, those in the, the medical laboratory to know if it's a relevant ask or not, <laughs> you know, because people do ask for some crazy stuff. <laughs> so. Yeah, for sure. And and it's not to say that, you know, micro labs don't want to serve their, their patients and their, uh, you know, their direct clinicians. But um, as you guys probably know more, way better than I do, mycobacteria, uh, produces a lot more challenges than your typical bacteria in terms of growing, growth speed, um, variability in their growth style. So, you know, run, doing susceptibility testing in those may not be as fun, I would imagine. <laughs> as it is not. And it's, you know, and uh, anyone that has a, a BSL-3 or higher lab that does this workup knows how much um, just resource management that takes to be able to work up these cultures in general, let alone do the susceptibility testing. So definitely not feasible for a lot of labs right now, but that doesn't, um, doesn't mean things won't change. And actually this is, this has got me thinking about, um, maybe sort of a parallel thought, maybe totally unrelated. I'm not sure, but you know, when you're talking about additional uses for fluoroquinolones and other, um, areas of clinical utility, I, I think about, you know, you said at the beginning, fluoroquinolones are, are a bit, um, controversial in their use. There's some maybe negative downstream um, consequences of using these. So just from a stewardship and, um, you know, not only from an AMR perspective, but in, in a stewardship uh, frame of mind, why should we think about using these more or less? You know, why do people love them? And then why should we maybe think about not using them as much? And are there concerns for inducing, um, you know, resistance like we see with these other bugs? Yeah, there's so many um, sub caveats. So I, you know, we obviously don't have time to go through each of them in deep detail, um, but I think I'd like to cover them each uh, at surface level. So, you know, going back to the discovery of fluoroquinolones, people fell in love with it. Why? Well, there's the three kind of uh, pillars for why you you love an antibiotic. One, it's potent, so it's very very fast acting. It's very bactericidal. 
um, it's also very distributed inside of the human body. So as a molecule, um, different than other potential classes of uh, antibiotics, it gets everywhere. You know, if you have a bone infection, you have a brain infection, you have a kidney infection, you know, this class of drugs just moves around and gets everywhere. Um, and then the other kind of nuances would be pharmacokinetic properties. And I know we're not going to go into a lot of detail about that, but as a patient, let's think about it for a second. If you're, you know, have an infection, you don't feel so great. Do you want to be taking something four five, six times a day? Um, and the answer is absolutely not. Um, and so for equivalents have really good properties in that it can be dosed as little as once a day, uh, at most probably twice a day. And so you put those kind of three trident variables together and clinicians loved it. You know, you write it for a UTI, um, patients say they call back 12 hours later, six, six, eight, 12 hours later. And they say, Hey doc, I'm feeling great. Thank you for whatever it is that you wrote for me. You're the best doctor in the world. Right. And so those things, you know, they weigh, they have merit. And so at the time of discovery, you know, foraquilones were working really well for everything. Um, and the two most common um, usages of foraquilones were in the ambulatory care setting for infections that probably did not need foraquilones, but, you know, it was so great. And so those were things like community-acquired pneumonia um, and urinary tract infections. But what we're learning now, um, and so there's some downsides, let's talk about it in, in very quick fashion. So you've got side effects. So side effects that we now know are can be very, very severe. So things like tendon rupture, QT prolongation, and then you know, cumulative courses of antibiotics, you can have aortic dissection or aneurysm. So these are not kind of you know, benign things to kind of sweep under the rug and say, oh, it's okay if it happens, we'll deal with it. No, these are pretty potentially life-threatening side effects. And then secondarily, you have major resistance concerns. So, you know, the general notion is that, okay, you have to be exposed to an antibiotic before you become resistant to it, right? That's kind of what gets taught a lot. But with a lot, some of these antibiotics, that's not the case. So the term cross-class resistance is a problem. So a very quick example is <clears throat> for quinlones, um, they can downregulate certain porn channels. The problem with that is that it also affects the beta-lactam class. So you can have a patient who's never, ever, ever seen a carbapenem, but get tons and tons of ciprofloxacin and levofloxacin. All of a sudden, get an infection and not have a <clears throat> excuse me carbapenem available to treat it. So these are things to consider. And to answer your question, Andrew, a lot of what programs have done is to save for quinolones for when we absolutely need it. I think that's kind of where we're at in the stewardship world. You might work with some of your stewardship folks, you know, you guys listening, and they might say, hey, can you guys depress for quinolones for certain infection types? And, you know, you might be wondering why. So why are we suppressing it for this, but not that? And so a lot of times the suppression will occur for infection types that you don't really need for quinolones for, or you have some e equally as good drugs uh, like beta-lactams or tetracyclines that we can use first or Bactrim, right? Trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, which is really good for UTIs. And so let's save the fluoroquinolones for later for when we really, really need it. Um, and so you might get suppression rules. Um, and so you guys might get called and say, hey, I, I really need this unsuppressed. And you might be going, oh, why was it suppressed in the first place? Uh, well, you know, really it's to promote some good stewardship practices. That's perfect. That's really, really informative. Thank you. Luis, what do you think? How are we doing? You got any more questions that you're dying to, to ask here? Um, no, I think, I think, you know, it has been great. I think we covered all the information that 
we needed to cover. And I hope that medical laboratory scientists out there and other microbiologists too, that, you know, they can benefit from this and, and, and understanding, you know, what's behind the testing that you do. And, and so no, it's just definitely been great. I, I didn't know much, I mean, like I mentioned before in a, Oh, labs, you know, I work in a huge facility and, and, you know, uh, when you work with mycobacteria, I'm being like, it's just mycobacteria. There's, it's like a whole separate world out there. It's like very compartmentalized and knowing, you know, the interest with fluoroquinolones and uh, for mycobacteria, you know, it's something that I learned. So it was really good. I just wanted to add, you know, we touch on it once again, and I always uh, want to tell the audience, you know, uh, check the CLSI, you know, get familiar when you have downtime, you know, just you don't need to learn everything that's in it, but at the very least, you know, know where it's at and know what you can find in it. And you can also find it online as, you know, it's going free CLSI. The only thing with that is like, you know, they always, when the new version comes out, they update it one yearly, they put that one at the top. So make sure that your facility, you know, has done the, the updates that they need to do before you start going completely on the online one. Um, but I don't have anything else. I mean, do any of you have anything else to add? No, I think, uh, you know, for Quinlones, I, I love this class. I love talking about it. I know some of my colleagues absolutely hate it. I know, you know, if you guys are listening and you guys sit, you know, sit in on your stewardship committees, you might get a little bit of a hatred talk about fluoroquinolones. loans. And I understand where that comes from, but kind of my perspective is, you know, kind of understand why the hatred is there, but also let's not bury fluoroquinolones because the, this is a great class of drugs, but the name of the game is to use it in the right patient at the right time. And so there's, there's a time and place for them, but we don't need it for everything. We don't need it for your simple UTIs or your skin and soft tissue infections. And so let's save it. Let's save it for a rainy day. And when we really need it, it'll be there. I love it. I, I just want to say thanks so much, Minky. This was awesome. Um, you're so, you know, fun to talk to and knowledgeable. And I think this is really great and hit on a bunch of really important topics. And I love this overarching theme we have going right now in this conversation of stewardship, right? Where I would just like to remind everyone that we have so many, so many cool tools in our tool belt. Uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't use them. That doesn't mean we should use them all the time. There's a time and a place for everything. I think strategic implementation and use of these things is important. And that's why this collaboration between the lab and clinicians is so, so, so important uh, because we can really work together to optimize the way we test, report, and use these things in practice and just uh, try to approach AMR with this more comprehensive perspective and, uh, you know, patient mindedness uh, to it, which I think is what this podcast contributes to, Louise. So great job. And as always, a delight to be here. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you for the invitation. Same here. Definitely a pleasure. Uh, you know, it's always great working with you, Andrea. And, uh, and definitely, you know, a pleasure having you on Minky. You know, you're always welcome to come back again. And, you know, if the audience, if, if you ever, you know, via social media or via email, if you want to request something, you know, a little more in depth, we can always, you know, work on something like that. For in the meantime, we are going over the antibiotics and um, breaking them down. And then at some point in time, we'll dive a little bit deeper. But as always, you know, the stock micro is open to requests and any feedback. So just make sure you submit those via social media or email. So definitely a great way to uh, wrap up the year with the third episode of the AMR subseries. Um, so once again, you know, thank you both for uh, doing this and being in Let's Talk Micro. Happy New Year.
And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed the next episode of the AMR subseries. This one about fluoroquinolones. As always, I enjoy sharing this information with you. Thank you, Dr. Prinzi, for co-hosting with me on the series. And thank you, Minky Wungwatana, for being a great guest and sharing so much information. If you haven't checked out the previous episodes of the AMR subseries, please go ahead and do so. Episode 98, which is an overview, and episode 101, where we talk about beta lactams. So, thank you. It has been a great year. Thank you for the support. Enjoy your time off. If you're taking time off, if you're spending time with family, if you're recharging your batteries, have a great time. So now, for the next, throughout the holiday season, I'll be releasing some episodes that they were like older content with some minor touches that they deserve, you know, a better, a fair chance to go ahead and, and get more reception because they were released early in the podcast when maybe didn't have as many followers. So some great episodes about Streptococcus pneumoniae and also about Enterococcus. So stay tuned. But thank you for a wonderful 2023 with a lot of. You know, I met a lot of great people, went to some great conferences. So very grateful for the support. So as always, continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. You do such great work. So as always, stay motivated, stay safe. And of course, Minky, continue talking micro. Continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.